Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. This week I am sharing one of my favourite episodes ever from the archive. It's with the British writer Max Porter, and it was a conversation we had about his first novel, Grief is the Thing with Feathers. It was one of the most affecting books I've ever read, and I truly missed a subway stop because I was so engrossed in it. Now, you might be asking why share a conversation and a book about grief on a long weekend coming up over Easter. But I think when you listen to this conversation, you will know why. Hearing Max and I talk about messy families, relationships, and yes, grief will make you want to hold your family just a little bit tighter this long weekend. Max is also the author of a couple of other books, a novel called Lanny and a work of experimental fiction called The Death of Francis Bacon. I hope you enjoy this episode. See you soon. We're here to talk about your debut novel, uh, Grief is a Thing with Feathers. And I was just telling Max before we were recording how uh, devastating, riveting, shocking and funny this book is and yeah it's such a pleasure to have you here and i was just sitting here blushing (laughs) perfect perfect (laughs) well because it is such an unusual book uh, perhaps you could read um, a passage uh, for us so you can kind of we can get a sense of it what it's like and then we'll we'll get into this discussion okay crow Once upon a time there was a babysitting bird, let's call him Crow. He had read too many Russian fairy tales. Lazy Boy Burn, Baba Yaga Howl, Decent Prince Win. But was nevertheless an authorised and accredited caregiver, much admired by London parents, much in demand of a Friday night. On his newsagent advert it was written, Nappy Valley and beyond. The telly went off and Crow suggested a game. You two boys, he said must each build, here on the floor, a model of your mother, just as you remember her. And whichever of you builds the best model will win, not the most realistic, but the best, the truest. The prize is this, said the crow, stroking their shampooed hair. The best model I will bring to life, a living mother to tuck you up in bed. And so the boys set to it. The one son went for drawing, furiously concentrating like a little waist-high fresco painter, scrabbling hands and knees on the scaffold. Thirty-seven taped-together sheets of A4 paper in the full rainbow of crayons, pencils and pens, his front teeth biting down on his lower lip. Heavy nasal sighing as he adjusted the eyes, scrapped them, started again, working his way down, happy with the hands, happy with the legs. The second son went for assemblage, a model of the woman made from cutlery, ribbons, stationery, toys, buttons and books, manically adjusting, leaping up, lying down like a mechanic in the pits, clicking and tutting as he worked his way around the mosaic mum, happy with the face, happy with the height, and stop, said the crow. They are both extraordinary, he said, admiring their work. You've got her smile, you've captured her posture, her shoulders were hunched to that exact degree. And the boys couldn't wait to find out who had won. Which one? Which mum? But Crow started hopping, avoiding their gaze, suppressing a giggle and turning away. Crow, which one of these fake mums has won us a real one? And Crow was quiet, laughing no more, 
Crow, don't be funny, let's have our real mummy. And Crow started crying. And the boys cooked Crow in a very hot oven until he was nothing but cells. This is Crow's bad dream. Thank you. Well, I guess from that story, everyone might have a sense of kind of how dark <laughs> the book is. But um, it's obviously about grief, which is in the title. But I guess firstly, because this crow is such an unusual character, where, where did he come from for you? Um, well, I knew that if I was going to tell this story as a triptych, as a three-part thing, and the boys were one voice, and they're, they're the sibling relationship as a character, and then the dad was one voice, I knew that I needed something very heavy and very black and very linguistically disruptive to be mm -hmm. the middle part. I knew it had to be noisy and dark because I wanted to write about the noisy darkness of, of, of that trauma, of that space, and I wanted the language to reflect it. And then I thought, the crow has such an incredibly long symbolic life. You know, he's always been the animal that human beings have used to tell stories about death. Um, so I kind of couldn't resist him. And then I also knew that I wanted this to be a book about poetic obsession and how one's poetic, any artistic obsession can come alive and haunt a person. So I thought he's kind of, he's too good to be, you know, I can't not put him in. And then also because of the Ted Hughes thing, I thought if this guy's obsessed with Ted Hughes and his obsession actually manifests itself in their lives, then it's got to be Crow because Crow, the Hughes poems were written at that, that uh, traumatic point in Hughes' life. So it all just added together. And, I, and it was irresistible, so I put him in. And also there was a moment when, there was a time when it was going to be Telemachus from the Odyssey, it was going to be the middle voice, and it was going to be this boy who came to live with them and taught them about waiting. And, the, and in fact, the, the impossibility of a return, the fact that your the, the dad never comes home, mum never comes home, that went, you know, loss is loss, and he was going to be a kind of lifestyle coach. Um, but then I thought, oh, no, I've got to use Crow. And then I was in my garden, and I don't get crows really where I live in South London, but they're massive crow, like a comically large crow just kind of splatted down in front of me in the garden and went, Krah! and I saw, so it was like X Factor or something. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you're in, like an audition. So, and around about that time, possibly because of an impatience with the novels I've been reading and possibly just um, in a kind of foolhardy way, I was thinking what would it be like to make a book that was like a bird, that was crow-like. And so I'd been looking at videos of crows and I'd studied crows a little bit and read a lot of books about crows. And then I, so I had this idea that the, the actual book itself could move like a bird, like a crow, so that it could hop around and be very vulgar and do things that shock us and that, are, that offend our sensibilities, you know, like eating baby birds and licking up vomit or whatever. And then also be incredibly beautiful. And that that, that, be, its, that be its defining characteristic, that it moves between the upsetting and the beautiful, like, like a bird does. That's incredible because when I started reading the book, I really felt like I'd never read anything like it. And it, and it screeched at me and, yeah. uh, I, you know, I was like I could feel the claws and the feathers and the sounds of the feathers. Yeah. And it was like I was having a sensory experience that I'd never had before with a, with a book. That's a really nice thing to say, thank you. I think, um, I think what one of the things that we do in publishing, that the publishing industry as a whole underestimates, is readers' willingness to go places they've never been before. You know, you don't need any signposting, I don't think. I think you can just start 
you know, because the, the conventional wisdom, especially as regards death in books, is that you need to kind of run up. I don't, I don't know who said it, but someone said a thing about killing a cat and that you can't kill a cat on page one because the reader needs to know the cat's relationship to the mother and the father and where does the cat fit in and where's the cat in the domestic space and blah, blah, blah. Otherwise, there'll be no sentimental punch. And I feel possibly as a reader of poetry, but mostly as a reader of kids' books and fables, that that's just not true. And you can kill a cat on page one and that the, the, the killing, the, the, the pain is the launch point. You know, this book begins in, in total blackness with like a giant testicle and all kinds of smells and senses, you know, and, that, and that's, you're dropping your reader in there. And I think that's, that's fine. That's good. I hope so. You know, it's a bit like seeing a piece of art. So say you saw like a Louise Bourgeois spider and you're on your own in a massive room and there's a huge metal spider and you're not sure whether it's a spider or a monster or just a piece of scrap metal. Like I prefer to just experience that. I prefer to just walk into that room and see that and figure it out. Whereas if you go in and you're given a piece of paper and it says, when you go in, you'll see a spider that represents, mm -hmm. you know, sibling rivalry and it was made in 1974 during, you know, that somehow robs it um, of well, all And I think impact. the best art does impact us in the way you're talking about it. It's visceral and it's actually the art that doesn't resonate too well, that needs a lot of explanation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just there's so meant so much in what you were just saying to kind of pick up on, to go back a little bit, the to Ted Hughes that period when he was grieving for Sylvia Plath. How is your crow different to his, and how, why did you want to make him so different? That's a, that's such a good question to be asked. The first thing to say is that <clears throat> Hughes's crow was many things but never very bird-like. Those poems are so ugly, and he wrote them to be anti-poetic, and they were a, an act of aggression towards the very polished lyric poetry of that time, and they were also a figuring out of this incredible darkness and guilt and horror, but also they're about the 20th century, they're about the failure of language and the, the bomb, and you know, this, this collapse of language and everything. And so the first thing I, I knew was that I didn't want my crow to speak anything like Hughes's crow, because I'm not... A, poet I'm not a I'm certainly not a great poet do you know what I mean that, that those lines are extraordinary the crow poems we uh, also thought if this is the character then he's had 30 years of hindsight like he's seen what the this book meant and I hope he would have a bit more of a sense of humor and he would have read all the biographies of Plath and Hughes and could and could gently poke that for his own gain and for humor and for, for a kind of affectionate critical energy but also I thought that maybe that's just one he is rolling that around in his palette. He knows about Hughes's crow, and he knows his dad has, a, has an obsession with it. But also he's the hider, myth, trickster, and he's also kind of the sort of heavy metal crow, and he's also the kind of tourist tack crow. You know, that he's got all, he's got this whole, like, weaponry of different symbolic and, and artistic roles that he can float in and out of. And he's also... I hope he's a bit funnier than Hughes is, you know. Yeah, he's he very takes himself funny. less seriously, I think, and that's important. That's kind of if I have any kind of postmodern agenda in this book, it's that is that the male poet that takes himself so seriously needs to be ribbed a bit, mocked a bit, tickled a bit, you know, and that good things will come of that. Um if if we reanimate the work by by you know, like vandalizing it in a way. Um I, well, this, and, this, and does Crow vandalize the poem, the Emily Dickinson poem in the beginning, or is it someone you, did else? Do you think it was Crow? 
You know what? As I when I began the book, firstly when you open the book and you see yeah. these lines of Emily Dickinson and they're scratched out, yeah. and the word crow is written over certain words, I thought, what the hell's going on? Yeah. And I thought in the be- well in the beginning I wasn't sure. Then halfway through the book I thought maybe the father's obsession yeah. with crow has made him see crow everywhere and so he's kind of gone in there almost like fuck you crow yeah, yeah. but you're everywhere and, yeah. and then you know at certain points you think oh it could be the boys yeah. when they're when they've grown up a bit yeah. and they're yeah. trying to make sense of what happened and then at the end you think it's crow so yeah. it kind well, that's of, the, that's you're my perfect reader that's exactly the point because the boys would have done it as a kind of, what, because they're mischievous, because they're boys, because they'd like creep into their dad's study and be like, fuck you, dad, and as you say, and make their little effort. But it would be Crow as this kind of act of manic, egotistical hubris, you know, this like, I, I am everything. Like in, like in the beginning was the word, and the word is always Crow, like I am everything. But it would also be dad's kind of note to self. Like I couldn't even read Emily Dickinson anymore. Or also on a more profound level, philosophical level, that what Dickinson is proposing about hope, you can also map onto grief. Like there is this enormous range of generative possibilities for thinking about hope and for, and for thinking about grief and thinking of it as something that might be ecstatic as well as painful, that, that great joy can come from learning to think harder about the people we've lost and the space that opens up in a life. You know? so, so yeah, it's all three of them. And also, because you know, at the end of the book, Crow speaks in his own voice for only one time. It's the only time, you know, when he says permission to leave and he mm-hmm. writes, and it's, and it's his, it's the first time he's not playing, there's no literary illusion, mm-hmm. there's no puns, there's no kind of gamesmanship of voices. It's the only time he speaks as himself. And he's, I, I like to think at least, that, he, that he's got to that point with Dad's help. And, he, and, and in a way that that language, that style he has, which is a kind of free verse, but it's also quite sort of English and, and matter of fact and quite tender, that the boys and dad have, have helped him get to that point. You know, and as much as he's helped them yeah. and he's, he's become analyst and he's become babysitter and ultimately he's kind of become a friend to dad, but they have given him the language which allows him to do the one thing everybody's been wanting from him, which is to just tell us what happened um, in a kind of abstract and gentle way. Um, well, and I didn't plan yeah. that. I knew, I, uh, that. That arrived at the very end of the book. I got to the end and I knew I had to do two things. I knew I had to finish the book, which I knew would be the dad and the boys saying goodbye and I knew that I wanted that to have some kind of sentimental gorgeousness you know I thought I don't want to finish this on a black note I want to finish this with love I want, I want people to feel love and to have some blank space where people can put their own feelings in there but I also knew that I, I owed Crow like he'd done a lot for me he held this whole three-part thing together and the least I could do was let him speak in a way that wasn't Hughes and wasn't, you know, and that, that felt for me quite cathartic even, you know, because I'd invented him to be troublesome. And then I think you, you, need, to, you need to thank the trouble in your life, you know, a bit like when you phone your brother after 15 years and be like, oh, I was a prick. Sorry, I was a prick <laughs> when I was 12, you know. It's, it's, it's my way of thanking him. Yeah, because it is a reciprocal relationship in the end. Uh, one of the things I loved at the beginning of the book when Crow says, which I found incredibly comforting and I needed it, um, he says, I won't leave until you don't need me anymore. And Turns out I plagiarised that. Oh, who from? 
I think Nanny McPhee says it. Oh. <laughs> no, but <laughs> or I Mary Poppins but or don't someone. You think I don't, I didn't something know. like what your mum would say to you yeah. when she's tucking you into bed when yeah. you're a kid yeah. Yeah. and you're having all the kind of your first existential, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. issues yeah. of like someone's dead. What does that mean? Yeah. And it just made me remember how much we need those types of figures in yeah, our lives yeah, yeah, yeah. who will stay yeah. as long as you need See them it to. It reminded me in a way, just you saying it like that, the birth of my first child. You know, men are hopeless anyway. I know this. I, I am a man that knows how hopeless masculinity is as a, as a, as a guiding structure of our lives. And I hope that you know, we're living in an age when that's more or less acknowledged now. But in the childbirth scenario, men are just useless, right? And a lot of men struggle with that or faint or go to the pub or whatever they do. And my, our midwife said to us, your job is to just pour water onto Jess's back. Like, and I was oh. like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I had my jug and I was like, oh yeah, doing a great job here. And she was like, oh, that's nice actually. And I was doing it. And then she was like, fucking stop with the water. You know, at a certain point she was <laughs> yeah. like, enough of the water. And the midwife's like, you're doing a great job. Keep on going with the water. And I was like, all I can do, like, I'm not, le I'm not leaving till you don't yeah. need me anymore. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to keep pouring the water on your back. <laughs> I, I think know, at one point she actually saying, punched Fuck me. you. <laughs> you. This is, you know, hopeless. <laughs> also, what, it felt like it was such an amazing idea to have grief actually be something physical. Mm. And I'm thinking about the things that plague us in our minds, whether it's a darkness or depression or a terrible grief and how because we can't see them or touch them, it's, it's, it kind of increases the anxiety uh -huh. about them. And how important was it for the boys and dad to actually see and touch? And for him, I mean, when I read the book, he is real. Crow is yeah. as, a, as big as a man and he has these great feathers and he's warm. Yeah. And smelly. Yeah, and really smelly. That's and, so good that you think that. Because uh, someone's making a play of this and they said that they won't have him fixed which I love. Sometimes he'll just be sound. Sometimes mm. he'll be like a big 60-foot scaffold. Other times he'll be like a pathetic little hand puppet. And other times he might be a bird. And other times he might be the boys in costume. You know, they would all take their turns being him, which I love. I think the thing is, that if, it would be so boring if he was just an imaginary, if he was just imaginary, if he was a dad's imaginary friend. Mm. So the, the big moment for me was when I was like, oh, he, he's going he's going to play with the boys. Like the boys are going to envelope him into their childhood world. So, you know, colouring colouring pictures with them at the kitchen table and them hearing Dad and Crow arguing and those sorts of things. Like, Because the domestic space is extraordinary. And I think that's, that's how your childhood memories are framed. So if there is any kind of gamesmanship between two siblings about who was where and what happened when, it's all the state, it's like this two-dimensional stage set of the flat. Like it, it, all the action happens against this thing. And I thought, Crow would have to almost be the person rolling on the scenes, like he's the stage manager as well. But I think we, you know, in terms of finding a physical, we, we're object-related people, you know. We, all, so many of our rituals are need objects, you know, whether it's like prayer beads or the, or the going into a space or the, or the holding of a photograph or anything like that. Like, we, we must take the, some of the pressure off the psychological burdens of loss or, or, or terror or fear or whatever it is and use objects. So I thought in a way I'm just giving these kids this, 
this multi-purpose thing they can use in any way they like. Do you know what I mean? Like they can use it as a punch bag or they can use it to cuddle, you know, and, and the, 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 comfort, the comforter is the same thing as the antagonist in a way. Like each, the object serves its purpose in lots of different directions. Um, so yeah, it's nice that you always think of him as physical. Because I think if you're looking at how the architecture of the family is exploded, you know, the, 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 I think with sudden death as well, like, it's not like, you know, as I say in the book, there's not like an illness, no one's prepared for it. And I think the, the fundamental thing that changes is time, your relationship to time. So the, even the daily routines, aren't, they're not the same anymore. Everything is bent and warped. And therefore by putting Crow in there, you have this sort of, like in a way, he's providing the one thing that isn't available to people in grief, which is which is a um, which is an ob- an object world, like a, a, the security of something, mm. um, which is ironic because he comes with such bad language and such aggression. But that he is he's representing the the thing against which they might root themselves in a way. He's he's like this the scale model or something. Yeah. One well, as the dad, the kind of one of the opening scenes is the post-funeral where the dad doesn't know what the structure of grief is. I think I haven't experienced grief in this way yet, but we all know it's coming for mm. us. You know, where I've just been lucky to not lose that, you know, those people kind of very close. But somehow in reading the book, there's a foreboding of knowing it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it heightens all those relationships just come kind of zinging towards you mm. and they're clear and you kind of have a sense of grieving for them ahead of time. Um, that's not even a question. That's, that's a, just that's a, kind of my experience <clears throat> of it. That's an amazing thing to think. You know, that's very generous. Uh, that, that suggests that the reader of a book is in, is in collaboration with the author, which is just a, an amazing thing for a writer to be told. I... I Loads of people died in my life um, around about the same time. Not not when I, my dad died when I was a kid, but later on as a, as a teenager, sort of a load of family, friends and grandparents. All, I lost all my grandparents at, around about the same time. And so I went to a lot of funerals. Um, and and a, a, you know, a woman, a friend of mine who was a teacher of mine had died as well. And so it was this kind of cluster of people that I was looking to for moral guide you know people who I trusted and I, so I sort of had this aloneness in the world I was like, I, what the, the world is so shabby without x you know that the, there's less to trust there's less to hold on to like I don't like what I'm seeing in the world you know politically and whatever I, 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 I'm repulsed by so much that I see and I just wish that person was still here because she would tell me how it, how to be in the world and one of the things that I most remember from that time is how repellent I found the ritual of, of grieving the funerals I found just so inappropriate especially for people that were so full of life and would have said don't put me in a in a wooden box you know with gold doorknobs and like we'll go and sit in a church in like uncomfortable suits and then have your crappy cup of tea and biscuit like that is not yeah. right for me and then sure enough we do it like none of us have got the balls to actually say, fuck, let's, let's have a party or let's all go to the river and swim naked and, you know, have a good time. To cel- it's not celebratory. It's this kind of weird, shammy use of them. Even though we're, it's a secular society and not many, you know, we're all still sitting in the church sing- singing these hymns, you know, to, to somehow say goodbye, but it's not a proper goodbye. 
And so I, it's lots of Crow's language about about the, the shamming, you know, the, the fraudulence of notions of moving on and the cliches of gratitude and everything, are my anger at that inappropriate way we do it. And also, I mean, one of my favourite things about my stepdad is one time we were at a funeral and we were all sitting, you know, like piously in the front row in our uncomfortable suits. And he tapped me on the shoulder and, and said, do you think your cousin was kind of sexy? Oh, my <laughs> it's like, God. So inappropriate, but thank God. Yeah. Like, thank God we're not all just sitting here pretending to have the sad thoughts. Like, he's actually just noticed that my cousin's sexy, and that's a good thing. <laughs> I felt grateful to him for that. And that's a kind of, like, I mean, that's applying the trickster thing to something much more banal. And, like, uses Crow as a trickster in terms of language and God and the phallus and blood and you know all this stuff my crow is a bit more helpful to the daily lives we lead like he's a trickster in terms of like loading the dishwasher or coming home from school or like not giggling at a funeral those sorts of things and those are the things that are that's the bread and butter of our lives those are the things we have to do and I think you you know the whole book is an attempt to think better about how we might honor the de dead you know it, the dead that we know and the dead we don't know just how to think harder about it and how to, you know, so it's, I mean, my, I have a Korean author who says that all her work is an attempt to mourn better, to refine, you know, the thinking one is doing about the past. But I, that's, for me as a civilization, we don't do it very well. No, and especially mm. in the West, we don't do it's it well. It's, it's terrible. And especially like, the, I mean, what bugs me particularly, I have this major bug there, which is the, the, the kind of remembrance industry. So the idea that we all get together several times a year and we wear things on our clothes and we sing the songs that say we honour the dead, we actually don't. Because if we did, we would be pacifists. We would have, our, our, we would have changed, our, as we said, you know, never again. We would have changed our entire military and socio and economic circumstances. We would have honoured them by actually not doing it again. But the truth is, we don't. We do it again. We sell the guns, we make the wars, you know. So in a way, it's like, how do you map that onto the domestic things? Actually, will we? be as funny and um, nice to one another as, and, and as sarcastic and as energetic in our criticisms of, of hypocrisy and those sorts of things as she would have wanted us to be. Like, it's a, that's what he's doing to them, is a daily recharging of the, of, of the onwards. Of the, of the kind. And the, 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 there's such a... It's a, such a shitey way of thinking about things that you would move forward in a straight line to a point of, like, betterness like fixedness, as though that that's some kind of benchmark of normality. Like he's encouraging them to grow sideways and tangled and around and that part of the, that the brokenness is part of you, that there isn't, there isn't a place you're going to get to where the pain is less. The pain is a part of you and is intimately connected to the joy, you know, that life is very, very, very sad and very, very funny. You know? Well, and that I feel that Crow does push them to the absurd. Like there's so much hysterical you know, so much joy in the, in this time that I felt it made me think, you know, do you have to wait for some jolt mm. in life mm. to fully live it? And why? And, and I wanted to say no. Yeah. But then how am, I going, how am I going to, like you say, kind of have the balls to really do something about it? Yeah. And I think... And I... But another thing I loved so much is that this family, it, they were fully living. Like it was, um, you know, the dad says we were smack bang in the middle, years from the finish, taking nothing for granted. And mm. I really got a sense that that was true. Like this family yeah. was 
in that blissful point where mm-hmm. they're, they're, mm-hmm. as a couple they were just discovering mm-hmm. even after many years who they were to each other and how yeah. that love was different with these yeah. kind of crazy children running around yeah. and yet and with have, hard stuff as well yeah with all the heart and the just bickering and the it fighting. was gritty and yeah, real yeah, yeah, yeah. and yet they were in it knowing it was so good yeah. and that that the the kind of terror I have of having that taken then is awful um I think a trope of so- lots of writing about grief is that is that thing about people saying, I, I did take it for granted. I wish I had told her. And so I wanted to do a sort of, a, like a, almost a sibling to that set of feelings, which is that I, I did tell her. She knew how I felt. We loved our bickers. We knew we were, that he calls mm-hmm. them post-mortem dinner, dinner party post-mortem bitches or something. That you're, this, this is self-conscious. Like we, are, we, are, we are aware how tired we are right now, but also how lovely this is, how we haven't had sex for three weeks, but that doesn't matter because last time we did it was great or whatever. You know what it is? Like the, the, and the, the I love kind the post-its, finality. like cocksucker. Oh, no, what was it? On You know, on the bottles of wine uh, she'd yeah. leave around the house. But, I mean, I, I have to accept I went to the, the hottest place imaginable to, to write that, which I had tried not to, but I did at a certain point think, well, okay, I need to I need to give this guy, you know, I've created this man. I think I like him. I think I, I think he's convincing he's not like me but he is shares some characteristics with me or people I know so then I was like right on that secure on on that kind of baseline let me think what would happen if Jeff died like if my wife was not here suddenly and everyone had gone away and I'm in this flat like with the boys you know and then I and I just sort of thought about the number of things left undone so there would be a post-it note on the the post-it note on the wine says oh no you don't cock cheek or something like that (laughs) and I think that's that's it like when a person dies, they don't suddenly become a very serious dead person. They're the same person that that morning would have taken the piss out of you or, or, or you know, mocked my shower gels or whatever it is. I, I collect shower gels. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's my one luxury. Uh, <laughs> From hotels or...? No, no, no. no like, I no. buy... I bet I, He's about, like, oh, no, no. About five years ago, I got given some Aesop oh, shower yes. gel when it was just in Australia. Mm. And um, from my Australian sister-in-law. And it blew... I wasn't much of a showerer. Like I wasn't, I wasn't a big washer. Like I'm like most boys. Are you, you know a bath? I mean? No, no, no. Yeah. I'm a shower. But like sometimes, my wife would be like, "When did you even last wash?" No, she'd be like, "Wasn't Friday? Wasn't Thursday? Wasn't Wednesday? <laughs> Shit, you haven't washed for six days." I was a bit like that. And then we had a new shower put in with some pressure, and uh, and I had this Aesop shower gel. And I found I was showering it twice a day. <laughs> and also, I I can't. Let, let's just do the shower conversation. Um, I can't believe people wash. In the morning. At all? No, 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 I can't believe people wash in the morning but not in the evening. <laughs> oh, yeah. It seems really weird to me because you go out in the day and you get covered in dirt. Yeah. And then you take that into your bed. Yeah. So I wash in the evening. But now I also wash in the morning as well. And, and, I, and I'm buying all these, all these natural, you know, all these, like, beech wood and eucalyptus shower gels. It's great. And I fucking... <laughs> Are there any new brands I, that you've just discovered? I'm trying to think. Well, the, my, my biggest um, luxury actually was given to me is um, Ortiv, Ortiv, Ortigia or something it's called. Ortigia. Oh, oh man. It's, it. it's insane. Uh, uh, like, uh, I can't remember. It's bergamot and peppercorn or something. It's wild. And I poof myself right up. I get really foamy. But anyway, you know, my wife thinks it's just preposterously stupid and sad that I'm so into my shower gels and she thinks I only need one at a time, which would be so boring. 
So you but, get to choose which flavor, yeah. which scent. Yeah, and feeling. I won this prize, right? And, and so I got half the money, and we and, and we're, doing really, so we're doing really, yeah, we're doing really boring things. Like we're paying our bills off. I'm debt free for a little bit anyway, and then like fixing the car and fixing the damp problem in the bathroom. All these kind of things we're doing, and, I was, and we're taking the kids to Legoland theme park. And then I was like, and I am buying some really good shit, like some really. <laughs> Good you know, so when you'd see a thing of shower gel and you think like £25 is just a grotesque sum of money, yeah. like, but I'm doing it. It's my one luxury. I, I think that's such a pleasure. Do your boys know which scent you've gone for? Are they in on it now? They know they're, not, they they're not allowed to use my shower gel. Oh, I see. And, and one time I found uh, the, ba- the boys were all in the bath together and I said, look after the baby, I'm just nipping next door to get whatever I was. And I came back in. And they were all like lathering up with just my like fucking that. special one. And I was like, what are you doing? And they smelled amazing. I was like, you use the cheap stuff. <laughs> but, um, but you know, so that's exactly what I mean. Like I I if my wife if God forbid my you know, you, you I lost my wife, you don't which would be deeply annoying because I'd have to stop publicizing this book, it would be too close to home. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I should take out some insurance or something against that. <laughs> anyway, so I, I would, I would, I hope that I wouldn't suddenly move into some register of like po-faced seriousness about like, oh, you know, she would want her to carry on, like she, would, you know, all that kind of stuff, which would be true. I would also work so so hard to have the crow mentality, which is that every time I would use my posh shower gel, I would hear her saying, "You are a dick." Yeah. You know, I've got to keep that going because we put these people in. You know, my dad, for example, was a man who. Only now, like 25 years after he died, are people actually telling me what he was like. Because while I was growing up, it was, he was wonderful. He lit up the room. He was a life and soul of the party. You know, this sense of unfinished business, this kind of shrine we build around people. Like Only now am I finding out he was a fucking dick. You know, he was a hopeless man who made a catalogue of terrible errors and then died. You know, that, I'm not going to love him any less. In, in fact, I'm going to love him a lot more. Now I know that. And now I can, now I can empathise with that. And start to see how difficult it is to make the right decisions. And when you fuck something up, how hard it is to get back on the right path and those sorts of things. But so Crow is here to say, tell children great stories. Tell them not necessarily, it's not, the distinction isn't between true and false stories. It's between wonderful stories mm. and not, you know, hence all the Russian fairy tales and everything like that. Tell them fabulous tales. But also don't, um, like, don't, um, bull, don't, don't bullshit. Like if you don't don't make it, don't use templates that you think are going to satisfy children's emotional needs. Like children are incredibly good and have huge imaginations and can handle big things. So you don't need to say your dad was an alcoholic, but you could say your dad was a big red-faced man who hiccuped and burped and farted a lot. You know, not, yeah. you know those sorts of things. You can tie it back to children's lives and children's bodies in a way that gives them something to chew on. Because otherwise we all just, you know, as I say, we're all just sort of sat in the church going, oh, how, how sad. You know? Yeah, and unless we talk specifically about the people we know and love, it is all those platitudes you mm. talk about. Mm. Um, the most devastating document I think I've ever read, actually it's a whole folder of devastating documents, but I got given some letters that my dad had sent, and they're a kind of, they're an extremely sad narrative of, of a person's unhappiness and letters that were written about him after he died. But one of the amazing letters he sends is to my mum, who would have been his ex-wife, saying how nice it was to see us when we went and visited him in hospital. He had an accident and we went to visit him in hospital. And he says, I was so struck by how different the boys were. And he says, 
Roly, my older brother, was was sort of so he seemed so kind of private and wounded and a bit and a bit sad, and he and he, and he seemed to have his defences up. And Max was all just chit chat and, and gibber gabber and whatever. And I was so ecstatically thrilled to see him make a distinction between us and to describe us accurately in a way that was actually quite surprising because I've always thought that I was the one drifting off in the corner having dreamy thoughts and my brother was kind of snippy snappy and chatty so firstly it kind of busts a myth that we've been told and also it just separates us because we were the boys we went everywhere together we were you know so everyone in the car where are the boys what did the boys do over the holiday and just to have him send from the dead you know from the from Hades or wherever he is sending this bulletin of, of nuance, that was just so thrilling to me. And that he was watching. That he was watching and thinking and taking the time to describe. And that's only five lines in a letter, but it's the impact of it stretching down over the years is enormous to me. You know, hence, hence this create, the creation of these kids, you know, where they are one thing. But within that thing, the sibling relationship, there is infinite play and, and, and difference and detail and I love how they get to a point where they're able to make fun of their dad now and that's part of you know it it, it was too sad before for dad or they become the caregivers almost Mm, mm, mm. Um, I wondered oh I'm so glad I remembered to ask you this at this point if you could read another small section the birds of prey section yes on page 75 yeah, I'd love to. I never read this. Oh my gosh, this it was. I needed this so badly. This part this actually happened. Oh, recently. Uh, so, uh, and it was one of those cool things. I was at work on the book, or at least I was sort of thinking about the book, and then we we went to a birds of prey flying display, and this thing happened that happens here. And I've invented the guy. The, obviously, it just happened, and the guy like, told us what was happening on his little microphone. But it was one of those lovely things like this will work for my book and this precise scene repurposed into a scenario of of of, of a mourning and recovery will like take the total thrill we've all just had watching this cool thing and just ramp it up like it will like if i it will serve such a bigger purpose and that made me kind of think one of the first times like, i want to be a writer do you know what I mean? Like I, I want to go out into the world and, find and take things. stuff and change things and jimmy them into my books. Like, Because I'd never thought of myself as a writer before. So, yeah, I'll read it. Oh, we you. have to talk about that after you've read this because that seems wacky. <laughs> okay. Dad, we went to a birds of prey flying display in a field, deep country somewhere with half a dozen old deers and the plump ginger guide with a radio mic. Here she comes, star of the show. The first bird out was a bald eagle, stunning, massive, with a six-foot wingspan. Ooh, yeah, we said. Ooh, yeah, the boys were transfixed. Now look as she decides whether or not to turn on the... Oh, there she goes. Lift, lift, up she goes. That's my girl. And she soared. She got lift. We got lift. The boys were gripping the plastic seats and the situational artifice of the captive bird performing dropped away, and I was just excited by the bald eagle, the physical magnificence of the eagle. Oh, now, here you are. Who's this? Oh, lordy, lordy, you tasty little bugger. Excuse my language, folks. It being springtime, the carrion crow in this field here is protecting eggs, as well you would with a bloody eagle about. How about that? 
That, ladies and gentlemen, is a brave little bastard. That is a crow surfing a bald eagle. I turned sideways, and the boys were spontaneously holding hands. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the bloody miracle of nature. That is two birds basically giving each other a bloody great nod of respect. You may be many bloody kilograms heavier than me, about 40 times my size, but if you come near my eggs, I'll show you a thing or two about flying. Up we shot, all three of us, a standing ovation. Go, crow, we yelled. Why ever not, said the red-faced lover of birds, our dude, our guide. Why ever fucking not? Go, crow! Go, crow. Go, crow. And that was probably the best day of my life since she died. I just love that. Thank <laughs> why, you. Why did I choose a you random so North crazy. English accent? <laughs> <laughs> Next time I do, I don't know, I do French. I'm making French or something. <laughs> oh no, it's brilliant. Okay, so I have to say the comment you made before that you hadn't thought of yourself as a writer, even mm. though. Okay, so you're an editor. Mm. Um. Did you get into this whole business thinking that you just wanted to shape other people's words? Um, no. I love shaping other people's words, but it was kind of accidental. I was a bookseller, a very happy bookseller. I ran an independent bookshop in London. And I thought I'd do it forever. I loved it. I, I earned a good wage and, I, and we were opening new shops and it was a cool way to spend my life. But I gradually and quite... Well, I, I gradually found that I was frustrated and I was writing little scraps of things and keeping sketchbooks and notebooks, but I was never getting anything done. Partly because of the working hours and partly because of the kind of anxiety of influence working in a bookshop. Like you think you've had a great idea, you write it down on a bit of paper, then you open a box and there's the new Anne Carson and you're like, <laughs> Anne Carson's the best, I'll never write. Um, and so starting the new job, I got this new job and I found that I was, I mean, I think it's okay to say this, I found that I was good at it. It was a natural thing yeah. for me being an editor. And being a commissioning editor, reading 150 novels a year and choosing the one that I think I can make work and I think that fits the literary credit, you know, the, the, the criteria of our list and all those kind of things. I just, I love it. I love covers meetings. I love working with publicists. I love standing at a launch party and saying, here is this guy's book. You know, I love it. I, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm really honored I publish some of the best writers in the world. Um, and I inherited some of the best writers in the world. So, like, I inherited. Rebecca Solnit and Patrick DeWitt and Ben Marcus, people who I'm 100% committed to. And I would have left my job if they weren't so damn good. They're so good. You know? mm -hmm. And then, um, and then, so I had this slightly personal trigger, which is that I met my dad's best friend and he told me some stories about my dad that made me think, right, I'm going to write that book. Plus the kind of crow obsession was, was galloping forward. And then, I, and then I sort of started to fiddle around with it. And then I found I had this... Whereas most people might have a kind of anxiety of, of, be of becoming or like who they'd show it to, I found that it was just totally private. I would, my wife was watching Orange is the New Black, um, <laughs> so she was like set for weeks on end. And my kids were in bed, we only had two kids at that stage and there was a little room I could write in. And, um, and I just found that night after night I was creeping back in and doing it and with no reader in mind. I didn't want to send it to anyone. I certainly wasn't thinking about publishability. I just was for the first time, once I'd found this three-part shape, I was just, I was just, I had a voice, like I was doing it, and it felt right, and it felt true, and I had all these notebooks, and I had hundreds of little bits of paper I'd kept from when I was a bookseller, so I never ran out of steam. I always had more material to work on, and if anything, it was a problem of keeping it back, keeping it out. 
Um, and then I finished it, and I was like, I, I mean, and I even remember going through and Jess saying, "You're in a good mood." And I was like, I, I, I finished, I finished something, and I think it's cool. Would you like to read it? You know, it, it was a total surprise to me. Um, what happened when she read it? Uh, she just thought it was really weird. She said, it's really <laughs> weird. Uh, I don't think anyone will publish it. And I said, well, I think I'd like to show it to some people and see. Um, first person I showed it to said, it's incomplete. Maybe it needs pictures. And that was a really good moment for me because she's someone I trust, but I also felt she was wrong. Mm, and I felt that actually... Knew I just I certainly didn't think it needed pictures because I thought it no, had... I don't it, want... It, no, it had I pictures have in it, right? I want my own crowd. Yeah, yeah, it's got pictures in it. And then she said, well, maybe it's the first part of something longer. And I thought, no, no, no. I think it, the fact of it being short is it's is it strength. If it was any longer, it would violate that. You know, I was aware that it was quite yeah. finely tuned, and if you put more on it, then it violates it. And I had written some prose bits for the mum. I'd written the mum's voice, and I took all that out because it just it seemed to undo something, and it also robbed the boys of the opportunity to describe her in absentia. So these sorts of things felt good. And I was like, I'm ready to sort of I'm ready to actually stand by this, and then gave it to Faber. And now it's been published in 22 languages That's or something, crazy. which is insane. Because it is that good. It's embarrassing. It's so when I first, special. Because it was on my Gmails, because I didn't have Microsoft Word, because I'm too stingy to get Microsoft Word, and the guy at work wouldn't give, it, wouldn't give me Wait, like Wait, the whole pirate. thing was written on... Yeah, so I would send it back and forth in Gmail. Oh, um, and then, and then I would put, then I put it in a Word document and press Word count, and I was like, no, no. <laughs> There's a zero missing. And then I printed it out at work and I crept to the, and I ran to the printer to check no one else would find, like, my, it, how embarrassing, like, Max has written a novel, everyone, Max has written a novel. But it was just like 12 pages. And it felt big to me. It felt like a long thing. And then I was like flapping it around thinking this is just pathetic. But then, you know, then that's when good publishing steps in. I mean, when they were typesetting it and they were starting to talk about the fact that they would make it look like what it is. They would make it look like hybrid of, poetry and the play and they'd breathe that white space into it and they'd split it into it was just that lovely thing that happens occasionally in your working life that it just gels like a product just comes into being and it seems to be somehow destined to be itself just itself no one put anything in this they just let it be itself and to see that happening now in foreign languages as well where people obviously can't just translate this they have to turn it into something else make it work in Spanish. You know, he has to be a Spanish crow. And Spanish crows yeah. are complex things. They've got their own shit going on that I don't even know about. <laughs> and they've got, they've got Basque swear words and they've got weird rhythmic swagger that I, I can't... And they're doing it because I trust them. It's lovely. Absolutely lovely. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Well, I kind of was craving to see it performed. Right. Even just as a one person right, right. like you read it well you will be able to see a play someone's doing a play in London um, and they said a cool thing because lots of people wanted to make a play and it came with kind of proposals but then the theatre company we're actually going for said um, we're just going to get all our favourite people and we're going to hire a space and close the door and, and you can come in if you want and then six weeks later we'll have a play and it may bear no relation to your book or it might be kind of exactly your book and we don't know yet wow yes you know, this is this thing of it being Letting in flight, go. off it goes. Yeah. I mean, the last thing you should ever do to a crow is try and control it. He's cleverer than us. You know what I mean? I've got to, he's cleverer than me. I've got to let him go. Um, and it's exciting. Gosh, <laughs> I think that is just the perfect place to end on this beautiful note. 
Thank you so much. I love this me. conversation. I've loved it. And best of luck. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. In two weeks, we'll be back with Clemency Burton-Hill. See you then. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.